The following are some of the conditions, syndromes, complexes, and general discomforts of me. Can you slow down? (laughs) (laughs) I want to make sure I get these. Advanced moist shin disorder. I have a hypertolerance to lactose. Urinary tract infection. (laughs) Urinary ache tract infection. Trickle nipple. Thick urine syndrome. Habsburg cholera. First things first, we got some submissions for the catchphrase. Um, I got a lot of them from just a couple people, and they're all pretty bad. So here you go. I'm just going to list off some that made me laugh. (laughs) So one guy said, you should say, hi, everyone out there in listener. <laughs> Sorry, it's so stupid. Hi, everyone out there in listener land. Get the motherfucking cash app. <laughs> Enter the code Joe Rogan and you get five bucks and five bucks. Will go, go to Justin Red's fight for the forgotten charity. <laughs> That's just a stupid ad stolen from the Joe Rogan podcast, obviously. Okay, this guy sent a bunch. Welcome to Basis Point Podcast. It's going to be like an economics orgasm. Okay, this is my favorite one, probably. Welcome to Basis Point. Learning economics like Edmund Dantes. But our best friend isn't going to steal our woman while we're away at the Chateau Deep. Welcome to Basis Point, the only podcast about economics narrated by a guy in Idaho. P.S. I don't suck cock like it might seem like I do. Oh, boy. Talking about money, savages, scabies, rabies, and Mickey Rooney's sugar babies. (laughs) This is the Basis Point podcast. (laughs) It's funny. You (laughs) You want to talk about sex, you little whore? Look for another podcast slot. This is Basis Point. Oh, man. (laughs) Are you often bored at church? That's okay. You can listen to Basis Point, and it will also be boring. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. I don't think I'm going to be able to use any of those. Some of them sounded like advertisements for the podcast. Um, I don't think any of them were really good openers. I don't know. Keep them coming. Send submissions to basispointpodcast at gmail.com. Some of those made me laugh so hard, I'm still going to send some gold coins to those guys. So keep them coming, please. All right. So this week I'm going to be going over uh, three chapters from the book. Uh, The first one is chapter five. The title is, Of the Real and Nominal Price of Commodities, or of Their Price in Labor and Their Price in Money. Uh, I'm just going to play the first kind of paragraph from this chapter. Uh, Here we go. Every man is rich or poor according to the degree in which he can afford to enjoy the necessaries, conveniences, and amusements of human life. All right. Sorry, Adam Smith. I just got to cut you off here. He says this phrase, the necessaries and conveniencies of life, so much through the book. Like, it's just peppered in 
to every chapter multiple times. It's so weird, but he... Adam Smith gets a boner from this combination of words. Sorry. Continue. Or let's just restart. Every man is rich or poor according to the degree in which he can afford to enjoy the necessaries, conveniences, and amusements of human life. But after the division of labor has once thoroughly taken place, it is but a very small part of these with which a man's own labor can supply him. The far greater part of them he must derive from the labor of other people, and he must be rich or poor according to the quantity of that labor which he can command or which he can afford to purchase. The value of any commodity, therefore, to the person who possesses it and who means not to use or consume it himself, but to exchange it for other commodities, is equal to the quantity of labor which it enables him to purchase or command. Labor, therefore, is the real measure of the exchangeable value of all commodities. Smith makes this assertion that labor is the core of value. Even in an economy with no money or assets or anything, like your value to you personally is the price you pay in uh, effort and your time spent. So he starts off with this claim, and then he starts talking about money and the value of money. And really, he gets into the uh, history and tons of uh, examples from Britain about like what different kings and queens did and how it affected the value of money. And like he brings up that everything was chugging along fine in Scotland until in America they discovered some gold and silver mines, and all of a sudden, like the market was flooded with a brand new supply of gold and it just fucked everything up for their economy because it was it altered the you know dynamics of the value of gold so in the unabridged version of the wealth of nations in this chapter smith gets into some really specific historical examples of the value of money and how the value of money was affected by things like the supply of gold and silver and everything and the audiobook version that I'm pulling from, you know, read by that silver-tongued devil uh, English boy, it is the abridged version. And so it doesn't have a lot of those examples. But there was one that was really interesting and specific that I wanted uh, to reference here. So uh, Smith is talking about the development of silver and gold coinage in the same market and how the actual price of the raw gold and silver itself would fluctuate, but that the coinage was locked. Like it was the gold and silver coins were tied together in their relational value. Like one gold guinea would be worth however many silver fucking whatever they call them. I don't know what their silver things were called. Um, But he said he talks about this problem that arises because of the um, assigned equivalence between the gold and silver coins. So he says this, quote, were the silver coin brought back as near to its standard weight as the gold, a guinea it is probable would, according to the present proportion, exchange for more silver in coin than it could purchase in bullion. The silver coin containing its full standard weight 
There would in this case be a profit in melting it down in order first to sell the bullion for gold coin, and afterwards to exchange this gold coin for silver coin to be melted down in the same manner. Some alteration in the present proportion seems to be the only method of preventing this inconveniency. Close quote. I just thought this example of like these pirate type guys, as I imagine them, you're buying silver coins, melting it, selling the bars of silver for gold, and then just buying more silver continually in this process, which is so stupid and hilarious to me that um, I tried to find other examples of that in the economy where people are just exploiting these like technicalities. Uh, and I know it happens. I know there are examples. I couldn't find a clear one that had like a good audio clip. Um, but I think stuff like this happens in the economy today where people aren't doing anything productive. They're just taking advantage of like poorly established markets and, you know, just skimming these stupid profits off of nothing. Um, and I just thought it was funny that Smith brought up that example in the book. Moving on to chapter 6, its title is Of the Component Part of the Price of Commodities. So when a person or um, a firm goes to market and purchases a commodity, where did they get that money? Smith lays out three methods people use to get money. The first is the most straightforward, it's wages. You're a laborer, you have an agreement with your employer, Every hour of work, you get paid a certain amount of money. And if you work twice as much, you'll get paid twice as much in your paycheck. Um, that's really straightforward. And there's a linear relationship between the amount of effort you put in and the return you get back. The second method is profit. And this, the dynamics of this are much more complicated, but the idea is that... Um, Profit is the money you earn when you take material that you purchase or that you own um, and you kind of work it into um, something that's useful to the market and you just garner all of the overhead from that. So like get a bunch of wood, you apply your own labor or the labor of people that you've hired to turn it into furniture, then you sell the furniture and you just get to keep whatever's left over after buying the raw material and paying your taxes and paying your laborers or whatever. Um, and that idea, it doesn't just apply to material goods. It also, it applies to anyone who starts a business or directly, um, creates goods or services for the market. Um, but it's interesting in that, the amount of effort you put in is not necessarily linearly related to the money that you garner from that. So if you look at the example of two furniture makers, they're both business owners. One of them employs uh, three laborers and the other employs 10. The guy who employs 10 laborers is going to make significantly more money because he's going to produce significantly more um, furniture, but he's not going to work more than twice as hard as the guy who's only managing three because each worker kind of does their own thing. And so Smith just shows that the amount of money you make as 
a capitalist is tied not so much to the effort you put in, but to the value and volume of stuff that you're producing. And the same principle is true whether you're talking about physical goods or like services or whatever. But yeah, so that's profit. And the third method for um, earning money is through rent. And this is where you own something and you charge someone for the use of it. Uh, specifically land in this case. So you inherited a plot of land from your dad. It happens to be fertile. You charge farmers to plant on it and grow on it. And that's it. You own it. You get the money for it. And Smith talks, you know, early in the book, he talks pretty disparagingly of rent seekers um, because he's like, they don't do anything. They just get money because they were lucky enough to be born into a family that passed land onto them or, um, you know, that at some point they were able to get enough money together to buy land, but then that's the end of um, their activity in the economy. They charge money for the use of stuff. And I think Smith goes into some detail about how uh, rent prices actually are of value in coordinating, um, especially like agricultural activity, that you have uh, land that is more valuable because it's more fertile or useful um, for agriculture. And so the people who can afford to rent that land are the ones that are probably going to use the land most productively. So it's not like Smith doesn't see the value in having rent, but he does kind of shit on it a little bit. So now before leaving chapter six, I just want to give Smith the last words on the primacy of wages, profit, and rent. Uh, even though we've kind of gone over it, this is a good statement that kind of encapsulates everything in this chapter. All taxes and all the revenue which is founded upon them, all salaries, pensions, and annuities of every kind, are ultimately derived from some one or other of those three original sources of revenue, and are paid either immediately or immediately from the wages of labor, the profits of stock, or the rent of land. So there you go. Uh, chapter 7 is called Of the Natural and Market Price of Commodities. The natural price of commodities is the price that sellers and buyers would agree on if we lived in a perfect world where the amount of stuff that people wanted was matched exactly by the amount of stuff produced. Um, and so, like, people would meet up at a marketplace for, say, corn, and farmers would have produced exactly the amount of corn that people who buy corn and eat it or use it for their animals or whatever want to buy. And so at the end of the day, everyone would spend the money they brought with them. There would be no more excess corn left. No one would leave without the corn they wanted. Um, and that would be the natural price of that commodity. The market price is what actually gets spent on um, on goods as buyers and sellers come together and agree on a price. So the um, market price is always above or below the natural price. 
um, because, you know, farmers come with more corn than people really want to buy or are willing to buy, and therefore the farmers have to start competing with each other, lowering their prices to sell um, to sell what they have so they don't go back to their farms with excess corn that they won't make any money off of and that they can't use themselves. And the same thing happens on the flip side. When more people show up to market than there is corn um, to supply them, the buyers have to start competing with each other and the farmers can start raising the prices because people are willing to pay more rather than uh, go home without corn up to a certain point. Um, and in this way, the market price of goods hovers around the natural price. So if one year corn is underproduced, people are willing to pay more for it, farmers in the next season um, will be more incentivized to either use their land to grow corn that was being used for their purposes, or farmers may even um, buy new land, or more people may go into farming as they're attracted by the higher price that they can get for corn. Um, and the same thing happens when the price of corn falls. People stop producing as much of it or, you know, farmers fold, they sell their farms. Um, and so in that way, uh, the market price of goods, even though there's some inefficiency there, it helps the coordination of goods float around this ideal um production and consumption equilibrium. And that's that's it. That's chapters 5 through 7. I skipped some stuff that I didn't understand. I skipped some stuff that was boring. And I hope you appreciate that summary. Um, I'm glad to be back making podcast episodes. Sorry for the long break. Uh, they should be a lot more consistent at this point going forward. Love you guys. Bye. Irritable bowel syndrome, spastic ear discharge, pubic lice, amphibial rabies, anglocentric sickle cell anemia, scabies, rabies, Mickey Rooney sugar babies, tarnished yam simplex. Guys, it's not funny. It's sorry, sorry. I understand. You know, no, it's- laughter, the vibrations of laughter are good for me. Oh.